0: You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. We are getting into the word of God this morning, so why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27 is our text this morning. And if you have not been with us, what we've been doing since we started the church back in the beginning of October is we've just been systematically going through the gospel of Mark, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Don't skip any of it, just tackle it as we go. And uh, today, like other days, the subjects can be difficult and hard, but it's the word of God and it's profitable and it's for us, um, and it's for our lives to equip us, and it's God's word, so it's His will. Amen. So Mark 12:13 through27, what I will do is I'll read it. Why don't you read along with me? And then we will pray. Mark 12:13 through27 says, later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You're impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw, saw, saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. Then they handed it to him and he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, Caesar, excuse me, and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. Verse 18, then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed a question, teacher. Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers, the oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow and he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them and still there were no children. Last of all, the women also died. So tell us, "'Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? "'For all seven were married to her.'" Jesus replied, "'Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures "'and you don't know the power of God. "'For when the dead rise, "'they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. "'In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven.'" But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died? God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would anoint our time. You'd anoint me to be your mouthpiece. Lord, I don't want this to be my words. I want it to be your words. And I ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word this morning, that our hearts would be like the parable of the sower, that we have fertile soil that produces fruit when we hear your words, 30, 60, 100-fold fruit, And so, God, we ask that you would cut through all that we're thinking about right now, all the distractions, all the stuff, all the things that that are weighing us down and distracting us from what you have to say. We just say that this is your time, Lord. Have your way with us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember where we've left off, Jesus is in the middle of a series of tense discussions with the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And what they were, in essence, were the religious police. They're ones that made the calls and were the end all to all things Jewish. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen this um, man, the, the tension and opposition that comes to Jesus most likely is because of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're always calling out Jesus. They're always confronting him. They're always arguing. They're always trying to catch him. They're trying to discredit him and disprove him, and ultimately, they're trying to trap him into saying something that would get him arrested or even worse. These, the Sanhedrin, scribes, Pharisees who we're talking about today, they're the ultra-religious, legalistic group. And instead of seeing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, right, the one who would come to save the world, instead of believing, instead of ushering him into all of Israel, they thought him to be a threat, right? He was was confronting their way of life, the way they did their religion, what they believed, and so instead of believing who he said he was, they thought of him as a threat. And what's ironic today is just the subject or subjects that they bring up. And it's ironic because um, the joke or the saying that you may have heard, right? You may have heard this saying that there's only two things in life that are certain. What are they? Death and taxes. Death and taxes is literally the context of what Jesus is talking about. And if you didn't know, it's kind of interesting, but death and taxes, that saying, is actually like attributed to Benjamin Franklin. He's the first one that said it. 1789 in a letter and he says this. He said, our new constitution that is now established has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Benjamin Franklin, 1789. What we're reading in Mark chapter 12 is 1,800 years before Benjamin Franklin said that, and the context is literally the same. Death and taxes are what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are the subjects that are brought before Jesus, still being talked about 2,000 years ago. These two questions that they ask him in 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 our section of text this morning, the questions are meant to trick or trap Jesus. They're asking in such a way about taxes and about the resurrection, about death, about if there is a resurrection. They're asking in such a way to try to get Jesus to say something that's unfavorable, especially with the Roman government. They're trying to trap him. Like they're trying to ask in such a way that Jesus answers and everyone hears it And Rome, the occupier, the oppressor of the time, says, you know what, yep, we got you, you're arrested, and we're gonna punish you accordingly. And the Pharisees and Sadducees would rejoice in that. They're also trying to ask in some way that would discredit him being God. They're trying to trap him theologically in his belief of who God was and how the resurrection worked and how heaven worked and what happened after you died. They're trying to trick him as well to contradict himself in a way that would, in some sense, make Jesus' words empty. They're trying to discredit Jesus in these interactions today. So the first question, verses 13 through 17, is the tax question. Okay, it's the tax question. And the ones asking the question is important to know. First, the Pharisees. Those guys aren't new. But these Herodians, or supporters of Herod, if you see verse 13... It says that the people that ask the first question are the Pharisees, in some of your translations would say Herodians, or New Living would say supporters of Herod. This is unique, and this is kind of weird. We, we need to know the context to understand why for a second. But the Herodians, Herodians are this new group of people we haven't heard much about yet. The Herodians, we saw in Mark chapter 3, they're a party of, of Jews that supported the ruling authority, the the Herodian dynasty. So King Herod being the main guy that we've heard about quite a bit. Excuse me. The, The Herods, like this Herodian dynasty in Israel at the time, they were not pure Jews and actually acted more like puppet kings from Rome. And so They were ruling the area. King Herod called a lot of the shots locally, but ultimately he was being puppeted by the Roman government. And King Herod, Herodian dynasty, these Herodians were despised by many Jews. So it's really weird that the Herodians and the Jews of the Jews, the Pharisees, are getting together and they're confronting Jesus. And the thing is, is that normally they wouldn't do this, but you guys all know the saying, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so mutual hatred for Jesus thrust the Pharisees and the Herodians into a strange alliance, and now they're asking Jesus a question together, which they've never done before. If you understand what's happening, there's a lot of opposition to Jesus in Jerusalem in our text this morning. And so together, former enemies are now united to trap Jesus, and they ask him whether or not that we should pay taxes. You have to understand that, right? The Jews, uh, the Pharisees, they're in charge of all things religious. They have an opinion on that. But the Herodians are trying to keep up everything that's Rome. So their answer would be like, of course you pay taxes, right? Because that's what you should do unto Rome. And so they together confront Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And if you remember, Israel at the time was under Roman oppression, under Roman rule. And they start our text this morning by flattery and mockery, they say, Jesus, we know you're honest, we know you're impartial, we know you don't play favorites, you teach the way of God truthfully. They're, they're pretty much saying like, you're good, right? You're honest, totally flattery and mockery, just kind of making fun of who he is and then getting to the point. And so the question they ask is, should, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus immediately calls them out. He knows, because he's God, what they're doing. And he says, why are you trying to trap me? Why are you doing this? And the reason why it was a trap is that at the time, this was the most controversial issue for Jews. Should we pay these unfair taxes that Rome, who's oppressing us, is asking us? I mean, the whole point of the Messiah, why they wanted the Messiah to come was to get rid of Rome. That was at the top of the list. Get rid of Rome. Free us from this corrupt, oppressive Roman government. And and you guys know the reality is like no nation ever enjoys being under subjection to a conqueror, but even more, having to pay taxes or other forms of tribute to that occupying country. That's like the most horrible thing that you could do. I'm not only occupied, but then that occupier that's oppressing me wants my money and my stuff. That's what's happening to the Jews under Roman rule. And honestly, every Jew in Israel hated the very thought of paying anything whatsoever to Caesar, Right, I mean, think about I mean, the Roman Empire, right, huge, big, massive. Israel, Jerusalem at the time, compared to Rome, I mean, this is a lifetime away. Ain't no planes, there ain't no trains. I mean, this is a lifetime away. They've never met Caesar, he's never, I mean, just like so far off from anything they could think. But some of the Pharisees actually believed that Jews were under moral obligation to, pay to, to not pay taxes to Caesar. So the Jews were like, hey, Under moral obligation, we cannot pay taxes. And so Jesus, if you're really a godly man, you wouldn't advocate paying taxes under this ungodly, conquering government. And so there's this real tension going on because the Pharisees and the Jews are saying, Jesus, if you answer one way, like, we're gonna hate you. And the Herodians at the moment, the Roman police, so to speak, are saying, if you answer the wrong way, we're gonna arrest you. So do you see the trap in that? By asking together this question, they're trapping or they're trying to trap Jesus. R.C. Sproul explains a bit of that trap in, in light of that context. He says this, if Jesus said it was okay to pay taxes to Caesar, the people would turn against him. But if he said publicly that no one should pay taxes to Caesar, the religious leaders would hasten to the Roman authorities and say, this man is propagating rebellion by advising people to not pay their taxes. This is, this is the context. It's not just a simple tax question. There's a lot riding and there's a lot at stake. And Jesus answers by asking them for a coin, a denarius. So he asks them for a coin and he says, Who, whose face is on this and what's the title? It's Caesar. So he points to the coin, and he says, this this coin belongs to Caesar. And so if Caesar's asking for some of that back, give it to him. It's his anyway. And so what he says is he says, if he's asking for some of it back, taxes, you should give it to him. At that moment, immediately when he said that, Pharisees would have been gasping. How could you, being a Jew, a teacher, a rabbi, say such a thing? But the Herodians in that moment would have been pleasantly surprised because them, right, saying, wow, he's saying to everyone around, pay taxes. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He does say, give Caesars what is Caesars. But then he says, but also give to God what belongs to God. He's pretty much saying do both. Honor God by paying taxes. That's what he's saying. Paying taxes is honoring God with your life. And I, and I, I want us, I need us to see that connection. Or else you're kind of, it's not going to make sense to you if you don't. What Jesus is saying when they're trying to trap him is they said, despite the government asking for taxes, if the government's asking for taxes, Pay it, but do it for the glory of God, for the honor of God. Don't neglect either. Do both. And so in this instance, to honor God could look like something as simple, mundane, and even not fun like paying your taxes. This is what Jesus is saying. And for some of us in here, especially for you that maybe own your own business, the word taxes is like the worst thing that you've ever heard, right? April 15th is like the time you dread or you know you can file an extension so you're not too worried about that. But, right, taxes is such this like sensitive issue that has so much negative connotation in a lot of ways except if you get a big tax return, right? Then you're like, cool, awesome. But Jesus, Pharisees, the Herodians are confronting this to try to trap him And what Jesus responds, he says, to honor God and to honor government. He says, do both. And this concept is not something only here. It's not this one-off thing that Jesus says, and we pass. Paul actually wrote about it in his letter to, to the Romans in Romans chapter 13, verse 17. This is what Paul writes. He says, render therefore all their due, Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Context for Paul was that Paul wrote these words at a time when the government, the Roman Empire, was completely corrupt, completely godless. It wasn't like this awesome government, and so you know what? The government's doing good, and so if they want money for a new road, I'm going to give it to them. It was a corrupt government. It was corrupt. It was godless. Who knows where the money was even going? But what Paul is saying here, he says, even despite what the government looks like, we still have a civic obligation to pay taxes. I know that might be hard like for some of us to hear, and the word of God does that. It confronts our lives and, and what can be hard for us. That doesn't mean... Um, That we can't still speak out against the government, right? Or like speak up against taxes. But it does mean that we have to pay our taxes. Jesus says we do. I know you're like, what? You're like, yes, he does. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. Again, if the government is absolutely contradicting scripture, then we have the ability to not obey the government. That's another sermon. But sorry, scripture is not your way out of April 15th. It's not. Jesus actually says the opposite. He says, to honor me is to honor the government. And I know our government, it's just really, really sticky right now, right? It's just complicated, messy, divided. But at the end of the day, Jesus' word says, Give unto Caesars what's Caesars, and give to God what's God's. The point, the takeaway from that first interaction is that we ought, as believers, as Christians, we ought to honor God in the way we live in society, even paying our taxes. You guys got that? Are you still with me? If you want to leave, you can go. I understand. No, stay here. Second interaction. So it continues on. They're amazed by his answer. They're speechless. They're amazed. Our second interaction, verses 18 through 27, is a different group of people. First, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now it's the Sadducees. So Sadducees are still very religious Jews, but a big difference is that they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. That is a theological truth that they do not believe in. Jesus is all about that. That is a huge part. That is the crucial part. That is the point. All of us, our faith, Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you do not believe that Jesus raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. Our faith, as Paul would say, is worthless. It's void. It's null and void. There's no power to it, and we are still stuck in our sins if we don't believe that Jesus raised from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the penalty. Do you understand? And the thing is, is that we too have that promise and that truth. That's the, whole, that's the whole point. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the price for us. But he rose from the dead, defeating death and the, and the penalty of sin. And we share in that. We also don't have to experience death as the final word. Right, Death is only the transition to be with God for all of eternity. Death is not the final sting, so to speak. And so this idea of the resurrection, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, is a very big deal. And so they come at Jesus, trying to trap him with a hypothetical situation. And in a nutshell, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, well, if Jesus, if you believe that if we believe in you, and we die, and we go to heaven. Well, what happens with our marriages? And you have to understand context-wise, it was customary in Jewish tradition or law for the sake of the widow that if a husband died and left a widow, it was customary that the brother of that husband automatically marry that wife. That was part of the gig. That was part of how it happened. It was so that this widow wasn't without. She was cared for. She was taken care of. And it was bloodline. It was lineage so that the name could live on. Big, big, they were big on that. But it was customary in Jewish tradition that if, some, if a husband died, that the brother would marry the wife. And so the story is a hypothetical situation of that happening to all the brothers. Seven brothers die, right? Widow after widow, like marries another brother. Then they all get to heaven. Jesus, if, if your theory is true, one wife, seven husbands, how does that work? That's what, that's what they're coming to Jesus with. They're trying to trap him in a theological contradiction because they're basing their logic off Jewish tradition. Do you see that? They're saying, well, Jewish tradition says this is what happens if a husband dies. So what happens in your logic if we all get to heaven and we're all resurrected from the dead? Who's marrying who? And Jesus says, you missed the point completely. There is no marriage in heaven. And this might be new to you as well. I mean, this is is kind of crazy, right? So Jesus says here, he says, the plan of the Father, the truth of heaven, is actually there's no marriage in it. Marriage isn't carried over. Well, there's no new marriages in heaven. Marriage between a man and a woman, the way that we see it right now, is not a thing in heaven. I don't want to get too much into that, like what heaven will look like, and so what does that mean, and what are you saying? That's a whole other sermon series, which I don't know a lot of the answers to, honestly, what heaven's going to be like in respect to loved ones and one. I don't know. I don't know. But the thing, what Jesus says here is, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be better. It's going to be different, but it's going to be better, but it's not going to be the same. And I know that might be hard for us a bit when it comes to marriage, when it's, you know, our spouse that we love so much that we want to be with forever. You, if you're both saved, you will be in heaven together but I don't know how together. Do you know what I mean? Because there's no marriage anymore. We're centered around God and we're worshiping God and he's on the throne and all, every tongue, tribe, and nation is in the presence of God, freed from the presence of sin for all of eternity. And here's here's what might help you. Present, uh, God is gonna be so amazing, right? The undefiled glory of God is gonna be so magnificent. And I think that we may be in so much awe of who God is that, honestly, I think all of our questions won't matter anymore. Does that make sense? Like, oh, what's it going to be like? And for me, when I was young, I'd be like, I'm just going to get so bored in heaven. This is, like, seriously so long forever just worshiping. Like, I'm good with 20 minutes, but, like, and what songs are being played? Will I like them? I mean, right? Like, we... We've done that. We do that. We're silly sometimes. But at the end of the day, what we see here is that Jesus is confronting tradition. He's confronting way of life. And he's saying the plan that God has and how heaven's going to be is going to be different than what we see here. Their, Their trap didn't work because they were looking at it in a wrong way. And I know this might be hard to comprehend, right? Even like traditional... Wedding vows, though, are till death do us part. That that comes from here. right? We don't say forever and ever and ever, I'll love you. Till death do us part. It actually comes from the concept that marriage is temporary. Marriage in the way that we know it is temporary here. And marriage, by design, in the best of times are supposed to be a mirror. Our marriages here are to be a mirror or a reflection of our, of our, the church, relationship with Jesus. And so what a marriage is supposed to be like, what my marriage is supposed to be like, is it's supposed to be something that reflects God's relationship with the church. How we ought to be with Jesus is how we ought to be with our spouse. Over and over, the Bible gives this metaphor of the bride and the bridegroom, speaking of God's people and God himself. This terminology or metaphor is used over and over in Scripture. Um, Just for homework, if you want to read more about it, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, talks all about marriage between a man and a woman and how we should interact with each other. But then at the very end, Paul to the church in Ephesus says, I'm actually talking about the church and about Jesus. Marriage, how we know it, temporally, is supposed to mirror and reflect our relationship with Christ. And so kind of to look back at a second of what's happening here, kind of to like wrap up or to to a takeaway of what's happening here is that we need to remember that we live in a temporary time with many things that are temporary. Temporary. We live in a temporary time with many things that are temporary, including taxes and marriage. No taxes in heaven. Good to go. Temporary. But also we see here that Jesus says, so is marriage. These are temporary things. Temporary time. But the thing is, is Jesus just doesn't say, well, you know what? Like, those are just temporary. They don't really matter. And so just wait till you get to heaven. That's the real show. What Jesus says in our text today is those things are very important. Pay Caesar what Caesar's. You can't just neglect that. Do marriage well to the glory of God. Don't neglect that. These things are very important, and we should do them unto the Lord and right. But we also should know. We should also have it like, okay, I need to do these things right to God's glory. But also we should know that heaven awaits us. And this life here and now isn't the goal. Honoring God for all of eternity, that's the goal. That's the finish line, so to speak. Being in the presence of God, right? We, as Christians, we have to have the tension of our life here is a mist. It's a vapor, the Bible says. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's our identity. We're actually just passing through. We're here for a time, and then when we're absent from the body, so to speak, when we die, where are we? present with the lord if we're saved right if we're believers but both are important are caesar's in our life and obviously the lord and so jesus is saying give unto caesar what caesar's and give unto me what's mine or in other words live for jesus now with a heavenly perspective does that make sense Live for Jesus, honor him in all you do in every aspect of your life right now. Be present. Like, do all unto the glory of God. But also, at the same time, don't remember this is just temporary. And that is the goal. Always live with a heavenly perspective. The key is to balance these truths. Some of us, when times get hard, Taxes, marriage, whatever it is. When things get hard, we like to have an escapism mentality. Oh, man, I just can't wait till Jesus comes back. I just can't wait till heaven. That's going to solve everything. I don't want to deal with any of my problems here because heaven's there. Let it all burn anyway. I don't have to worry about this stuff. Heaven, 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 heaven. That's escapism. That's not dealing with the now and just waiting for the then. But also... We shouldn't get so caught up with the temporary that we forget God and his plan and his will for all of eternity, because that's also easy to do. We're so caught up with the drama and the responsibility and the job and the family and the money and the stuff that we have and the texts and the emails and the bills and the everything You can get really consumed with the here and now so much that you fail to even remember where we are and what you're supposed to be doing, and then it's all about God and his will. So the key here is to have a balance in these truths, to live for Jesus now with a heavenly perspective. So this morning, as a way of exhortation, as a charge to us from God's word, I want to charge us to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. Not just on Sundays, not just around Christians, not just with the Christian stuff, but in all aspects, even paying our taxes, even as simple or maybe hard or like complicated as something like that, in our marriages, at our jobs, everything, everything we should do unto the glory of God. And as Christians, we are to give God glory in all we do including the normal, mundane, maybe dreaded taxes. is what Jesus is confronting right now. And this is why. Number one is that so we can honor God in all our actions. We're created to do that, glorify God with all that we are. That's what we're supposed to do. And what that does on a very tangible level, if we do that in the simple, mundane, normal things, it proves with our actions that Jesus is Lord over all. We may sing that, we may say it, but when the rubber meets the road, when no one's looking, do we surrender, are are we obeying and honoring God in all that we do, even the mundane things of life? And also what it does as Christians, that we obey the law and we pay our taxes and we don't try to like get out of stuff that we're supposed to. You know what it does for the rest of the world? It shows the world the character, truth, and love of God through our lives. It really does. When we're we have integrity and honor and respect and and we do things and we honor the government and we pay our taxes and we like try to live for the Lord in the simplest things. Stop at the red light. Don't run through. You know, like I don't want know what it is. Go too fast. Whatever it is, it shows the character, truth, and love of God when we bring everything under the lordship of Christ and we live for Jesus now with a heavenly perspective. Amen? Amen, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for, thank you that you're God over everything, that there's not an aspect of our life that you aren't in control of. And Lord, thank you that you're bigger than any government. You're bigger than anything that could ever happen, that ever existed or will exist. And we can trust in you. And we can trust in your word and what it says. And God, I pray that for us as believers, that instead of following the way of the world, that we would be Students of your word and obedient to what you say, and so Lord, where it gets really hard and tricky and 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 hard to do, something like uh, marriage or taxes or just the the mundane things of life, the everyday things of life, we pray that we would be a people that honor and glorify you with everything and so Lord, we pray for specific wisdom what that means so so uh ethereal sometimes but god give us practical ways of how we should do that with our bosses uh the way in which we interact with our coworkers, um our the way we pay our bills the way we pay our taxes in our marriages in our relationships give us practical insight how to honor you and glorify you with all we do and so lord would you empower us to do that um